Now, after last week's election loss, the Liberal Party has entered a pretty predictable period of soul-searching and recriminations and figuring, figuring out what to do next. It's surely not hyperbole to say they suffered a revolution from within, really, with the success of so many independent candidates, particularly in blue-ribbon inner-city electorates. It's prompted much rethinking. What really happened? Whatever the trend amounts to, when did it start? Well, two people join me now who've been absorbed in this question for quite a while, coming from different perspectives. Greg Barnes is a barrister, an author, and a former political advisor to Liberal ministers and leaders. He was disendorsed as a Liberal candidate in 2002 due to his criticism of the Howard government's asylum seeker policies, and he's since moved away from the party, and he's also charted the rise of the right within Liberal ranks in a number of books and op-eds, and he joins us from his Hobart home. Along with Dr Judith Brett, a Melbourne historian well-known to RN listeners, who's written quite widely on the Liberal Party and with considerable acclaim, her her latest on that score, even though that came out uh, a while ago, being Australian Liberals and the Moral Middle Class. Welcome to you both. Thank you, Geraldine. Um, Thanks, Geraldine. Greg, your impression first, please. Was last weekend a vote for independent women, mostly, or was it against the existing Liberal Party? I think there's a distinction there, and I wonder how you see it. Look, I think there is a distinction, but uh, I think there's certainly a vote against the existing Liberal Party, because if you look at the electorates uh, that uh, these Teal candidates were elected in, they are Liberal electorates, but they're also electorates where over many years, there's been increasing discomfort with the right-wing populism of the Liberal Party, going back really to John Howard's years. Uh, and so, you know, it really relied on a candidate coming along who was a social liberal and economic liberal uh, to fill that void. And when it did come along, that combined with uh, the fact that these were very impressive candidates and also the, the climate change overlay meant that uh, the Liberal Party was going to struggle because these were candidates who represented values of many voters in that electorate who previously may have voted Liberal. So you think this was brewing and really, if you stepped back, not surprising to see this, this, there was a search on, you're saying, which wasn't being met. Uh, absolutely. And I, you know, I wrote a book back in 2003 called What's Wrong with the Liberal Party, which said that, you know, there's a gap in the political ideas marketplace because John Howard had moved the party to the right. Uh, and that gap has finally been filled in some of these electorates. Now, Judith, you describe it as a significant class defection. <laughs> um, I I'm, I'm, would like you to build on that, please. Well, look, these are all well-educated professional women. Um and they come, they, you know, founded the party, the profession, and in, and really up until Whitlam, I suppose, well-educated professional people voted Liberal. That was, that was sort mm. of in their DNA, as you say. And so these are the sort of people who would have once been Liberal Party people. And I mean, I also think that one of the things that's significant about the candidates is not just that they're women, but also that they're not party political careerists. I think, you know, the parties haven't been that good at selecting candidates with broad experience, and these are all people who've achieved real success in outside of politics and have brought that that and are able to bring that experience into the into politics. And I think people have been looking for that um, 
you know, I think the sort of Tim Smith type candidate, the people who, you know, join the join the lib, young Lib or young Labor as undergraduates mm-hmm. and then work their way up to positions are not really very attractive, I don't think. Well, I think this is what I'm trying to tease out today. What it felt like, I suppose, to be in the... If you were inside the Liberal Party or tr- or wondering whether you should be and whether you felt welcome, which is what I think... I mean, you've got very strong views, Greg, but I, I, you, you have been there and, and then got out of it and then got quite angry about it. So, I mean, did you sense that the friendships changed inside, the, that people didn't feel capable of speaking up, they felt out on the outer. Yes, give us your sense of how that was developing. L- leaving us, well, you can bring in um, policies if you like, but it's almost more that sure. sensibility I'm uh, after. No, look, it's a, good, it's a good point, Geraldine, and certainly when I talk to people who previously have been members of the Liberal Party, uh, what they say is, particularly for social and economic liberals, uh, the party was pretty unwelcoming. And uh, I've spoken to many people over the years who've indicated that. And then they look at people like Fred Cheney, for example, whose niece, of course, just got elected as a Teal candidate. Uh, and they look at uh, John Hewson, many many others who were previously members of the party, and they that you know they feel the same. And so the party now, uh, the Liberal Party now, is you know whilst we've got a few small L liberal uh, people who are still members of the party, it's predominantly now a right-wing populist party, and it has been for some years. And so, you know, from that perspective, it's a party which has attracted uh, those who subscribe to that particular view of the world rather than those who are, you know, social and economically liberal. And you think that that really began 20 years, 18, 20, a lot, like a lot of people would say, yes, that that was accelerated under Tony Abbott and so on. But you think that that did start a long time ago. And was it consciously done, do you think, under John Howard? That's your view? Well, there's no, no, no doubt about that. I mean, the soft peddling on Pauline Hanson, the, the, the tamper, policy, which of course was uh, anything but economically liberal. I know the journalist Robert Millikan last year, I think, said it cost $26 billion. So, you know, you've had this move to right-wing populism, which has been, you know, uh, economically irresponsible. Uh, It's also been, of course, pandering to very conservative groups in the community, particularly the religious right. That happened and started under John Howard. It didn't start under Tony Abbott. Hmm. I mean, Judith, interestingly, like if you look back at Australian political history, and I mean, you've written about it, Labor hmm. for many years um, had to struggle for status in a way to be seen as worthy occupiers of power. And the Libs and the, and the country party, as it was, the Nats, had it to themselves in a sense, didn't they? Was did, were the, Could they not really cope as well with the competition that arrived once you got a lot of the educated people coming through and you got sort of mass public education brought in by Robert? Menzies, I might add, um, that, that this changed the underlying ability to a, a sort of almost sense of themselves as to who had the right to occupy the seats of power. Yeah, well, look, I think um, the election of the Whitlam government was is a turning point because at that point, um, a, a young sort of social democratic cohort of educated young people, many of whom were from, you know, professional middle-class families, went across to to Labor. And so Labor became a more complicated party with the sort of tensions between those people and its working-class base that we mm. know about. Um, but, look, I think competence has been a big issue uh, for the Liberal Party, particularly since 2013 when... Um, 
when Abbott was elected. Because one of the things the Liberals always prided themselves on and, and their predecessors, you know, right back to the to the beginning of, of, of the 20, 20th century, was that they could provide the people who had the experience and the competence to run the country. And effectively, what I mean, what I think we saw since 2013 was a, ser- was a series of incompetent governments, and I think that really came to a head and, under... Um, under Morrison, I think that's probably the most incompetent government in my lifetime, more incompetent than Billy McMahon. And Liberal, the Liberal Party and Liberal support, so I don't think it's just a matter of values. I think that's important, as Greg's saying, but I think it's also about competence. Well, it is interesting, and Zoe Daniel, I noticed, you know, who's the new independent member-elect for yeah. Goldstein, she wrote a piece the other day saying, uh, we listened while our communities told us what was driving them away from major parties, developing what you were saying. Discussion, not division. Evidence, not excess. These are our secrets. You know, that, that of course, quite a sober-minded sort of list. Now, of course, whether they're going to be able to maintain that, you know, in our system is going to be the big challenge, isn't it? But um, I wonder whether there's there was and, – and it's a more – well, it's more a relational female-type tone, isn't it? Yes, and also I think the really hard-edged partisanship that, we, that we've seen since Howard, and, and really it's an extreme under Abbott, where we saw the Liberal Party shift away from policies it accepted, um, for example, on negative gearing, doing something there once Labor accepted it, because and, and much of the debate or the noise around the failed various failed energy policies was this is going to make us look too much like the Labor Party. Not whether or not this is a good policy and good for the country as a whole, but it was about brand differentiation. And that was stopping us getting competent government because of this really, you know, just knee-jerk, uh, well, mm. p- partisanship. And I think you're right that, you know, that w- women have been associated more with seeking consensus and middle ground and giving a little bit to get a decent outcome. And I think that's what um, one of the things that we've seen in, in, in last Saturday night's election. Yes. Um, Greg, one of our listeners has said, I have thought over the last 20 years that the Liberal Party has looked to the US Republican Party for inspiration, which included bringing in large numbers of evangelical Christians. Now, I wonder what you think that is abroad, that argument, uh, and I've certainly heard it, that, they, that, you know, the Americans who were so dominant, particularly in the time after the fall of the Soviet Union, and they sort of said, you know, that there are drifts here that are happening in the US and they will inevitably come to you. Um, and, I don't, mm. and I, you know, I think it probably did influence the Liberal Party, but I'm wondering what your thoughts are on that. Uh, I don't think there's any doubt about that. Um, certainly there has been um, that influence in the Liberal Party over the past 20 years and probably uh, uh, certainly prior, just prior to Tony Abbott and certainly after Tony Abbott. And if you look at a lot of the issues in, you know, in fact, I've just come back from Perth doing a case as a lawyer, but um, talking to Liberals, uh, people who vote Liberal over there, their big complaint has been, oh, you know, the Christian right's taken over the party. Now, I don't know whether that's right. There's certainly some influence. They certainly in say that. <laughs> yeah, and they say it, and they say it too in New South Wales, uh, and they said it for some time here in Tasmania. And there's no doubt about that. But I think the other issue is this, that, that the language of division uh, has been uh, part and parcel of the Liberal Party since Howard. People, people might forget this, but this was the person who said, 
use the term battlers versus elites. And this, and then, of course, with with the Tampa incident, you had this, you know, uh, division between, uh, uh, you know, those who live in Australia and those who try and come in here, and uh, you know, so that that's that sort of divisive politics has been a hallmark of the Liberal Party, uh, and conflict, uh, you know, manufacturing conflict in society and setting people apart has been an issue. And I think that's why Zoe Daniels' piece is probably very attractive to many people and what she's saying, and, and, and independent candidates and what they're saying, which is to bring people together and to end this partisanship. Well, look, uh, John Black, who's an actually an ex-Labor senator, but doing a lot of work now in polling and um, you know, writing in the Financial Review, <laughs> I mean, he wrote what I know has been said, but it still is a shock when you read it, when he did an analysis on Monday. Basically, this was all about the money. If you had it, you swung against the Liberals. If you didn't, you swung towards them. Now, I mean, that is still staggering to read, isn't it, Greg? Mm. But we've but mm. we now heard it enough. We've got to get over, get over being staggered and say, well, where does that leave Where does that leave them and what's the consequence of this? And I'll ask you the same question. Look, I think that the consequence is the Liberal Party, uh, you know, is called the Liberal Party, not the Conservative Party. Uh, and uh, there's got to be something in the name. And if you keep, if if you drive away uh, people who think about the world in sort of fairly global terms, as I say, social and economic liberals, you're really shrinking uh, the capacity of your party to to govern in the future because uh, you're always going to be battling over those out of Western Sydney seats with Labor. They're always going to be marginal. Uh, and if you've lost your heartland, then uh, it's very, very difficult, I think, also to get it back because, uh, you know, living in Andrew Wilkie's seat, I know how strong independents are and how they can hang on to a seat and hold a seat. But the Liberal Party's got to become attractive and have attractive candidates. I think Judith made a very good point earlier about, you know, the careerists are no longer attractive to people, but, but decent Liberals, as opposed to Conservatives, will have a chance of bringing those seats back. And how do you see this, uh, Judith? Um, you know, can the, well, the, the other Libs, is, is this their new role? Representing well, those uh, without money, or the declining part of Australia, as Cos Samara said yes, on the ABC, it's I'm, an amazing moment. Yeah, but he says that about Tasmania. Yeah. He doesn't say that about about the rest of of, of the country. Um, so, and I didn't see John Black's piece. So, you know, the thing is, Labor held on to many of those of those seats in in the western suburbs of Melbourne and Sydney. So, I think he's he's overstating it a little bit. Um, there might have been a swing. Um, but I also, I suppose, I'm interested in the competence of government. And so, where are they going to get? candidates who are capable of being really effective ministers of state. I mean, that's because I think that was a real problem under Morrison, that effectively that was a, a terrible cabinet that he had. You know, all the talent had left it pretty much. Um, and so the party has to be able to recruit people who want to who, who, who want to represent it and who have got the competence and the skills and the intelligence to actually become, you know, good cabinet ministers. So that, that's a, a, I can't see them solving that problem easily at the moment. All right. Look, thank you both very much indeed. You know, it's, uh, it's, it's a discussion that will go on for a long time, but I, I thought this was an important moment a week after that amazing election to try to tackle it. Judith Brett, thank you to you. Thank you for having me, Geraldine. And uh, Greg Barnes, thank you to you.
And thank you very much, Geraldine. Uh, and Judith Brett's uh, Australian Liberals and the Moral Middle Class, that's Cambridge University Press, Greg Barnes' latest book, The Rise of the Right, The War on Australia's Liberal Values, published by Hardy Grant Books. That's a 2019 publication.